It's the real Hip hop Hip hop The real Hip hop Hip hop Peace This is Sharon Shabazz and you're listening to the realhiphop.com podcast. In this episode, I talk to Chicago artist Def C. Def C and producer Messiah Music teamed up and created an album to accompany the novel written by Adam Mansback titled The Golem of Brooklyn. The soundtrack takes a look into life as a Jewish American via the characters in the novel through the eyes of Def C. On this show, I talk to Def C about the strident voice of white supremacy, the inspiration he received from Adam Mansback, working with producer Messiah Music, and their new album, The Golem of Brooklyn. Okay, how did you get involved in doing the soundtrack for The Golem of Brooklyn? Um, Adam Mansback and I have known each other, I think, since I was in high school. Um, but we didn't really <clears throat> connect or start building until I was in college at the University of Wisconsin. So this would have been probably around 10 to 15 years ago. Um, and even then, it was still like sporadic communication on social media. Every now and then, if I would drop music he liked, he would reach out to me and let me know he enjoyed it. And then in January of this year, he just sent me a Twitter DM saying, hey, I have this crazy idea I want to run by you. And it wound up turning into the opportunity to create music based off of this book that at the time was in its final round of edits. So it had a publishing date or it had a publication date, but it did not at that point have any like it was still undergoing final rounds of proofreading and copy editing. So I read it in a day. It's 150, 60 something pages and I read it in a day. It was that good. It was that enjoyable. It was that thought provoking and deep. And so I reached out to Adam and I told him, you know, this is not in my mind, this is like a project like I, this. This is something that's larger than just a song or two or a short form EP. And he had given me Sky Zoo's Mind of a Saint album with the other guys as the template for the approach. And that was helpful initially in terms of wrapping my head around what it would be like to make a project that was an enjoyable listen independent of having to read or consume the source material. Cause I'd heard mind of a saint and really enjoyed it. Even though I'd never seen the show, I'd still need to watch snowfall. I'm, I'm bugging, but yeah, I still haven't seen it. And um, so with that said, it became from there just months of constant communication back and forth on a near daily basis to, to start getting the ball rolling on what the soundtrack wound up becoming. Was it difficult to create music that coincided with the book or 
did that make it easier to write? Oh, no. Hell yes. It was it was difficult. <laughs> it was very it was very hard for me um, because I think there were a lot of things I wanted to say about being Jewish, about being white and Jewish that I had not that were that were sparked by things I'd read in the book, but were not directly connected to plot elements or characters in the book. So what we found out in the process of recording, because I think to get to these 12 songs that you heard, we recorded 19 or 20. What we quickly found was that the, the most compelling songs were connected to plot elements of the book. And a lot of times the songs that I was creating that were based off of the book, I had a copy of the book open next to me. I was reading it as I was writing the songs. And it was difficult for me to be able to, I think if I'm being perfectly honest with you and with myself, it was difficult because this was the first time I was executing somebody else's creative vision. And I wanted to be able to do that in a way that honored both his perspective and mine, because if Adam had asked me to create a soundtrack that was one-to-one in terms of a musical synopsis of the novel, which I knew was something that Adam was not interested in doing, it wouldn't have made for much for interesting music at all. So it was difficult for me to create songs that were able to thread a very difficult needle in terms of creating music that was compelling, regardless of whether or not you'd read the novel. Okay. What exactly is a golem? So a golem in Jewish mythology, you get a bunch of clay. Sometimes it's mud. You essentially build this large humanoid monster. And then you say prayers. There are other rituals that you would do to bring the golem to life. And then the golem's principal purpose when it is brought to life is to defend the Jewish people from the biggest threat facing them. So there are stories of golems throughout history from that begin as early as Moses constructing a golem to distract the Egyptians while the Jews flee Egypt to as recently as there being rumors of golems during pogroms or ethnic cleansing of Jews in European countries in the early 20th century. So the golem is essentially, if you, a, a popular culture or a pop culture reference that connects to the golem is Superman. So I think a lot of people, if you look at the cover of Action Comics number one, which was Superman's debut, I believe he's stomping out a Nazi tank. And he was created by two Jewish comic book writers and artists who had fled Europe shortly before the Holocaust began taking place. And Superman kind of stood as a golem against the Axis powers in the art that they created. So that would be probably the easiest and most accurate cultural 
touchstone to connect to a golem. And then the other one, it's, it's kind of an imperfect connection, but it does make sense, is Frankenstein's monster. So this idea that you are essentially assembling something and then bringing it to life, whether it's a scientific or, or religious ritual, however, and then you are essentially responsible for the extent to which that thing defends your community or defends or defends you, its creator. Okay. Messiah Music uh, produced this project. What was his role uh, from beginning to end with this album? So Messiah was one of a handful of producers who I was thinking about um, asking to be involved. And Messiah and I have made an album together called Trap Door that we built over the course of seven or eight years. And he and I have a very good working relationship. We're both, we have very similar perspectives as well on being white Jewish guys and hip hop who really love the craft and the culture. And it was very readily apparent very quickly that he was the only person I, I probably should have considered to produce the project. I mean, he, his partner was in her third trimester with their second kid, and he was sending me dozens of beats on a near daily basis. And there was maybe a month or two shortly before, during, and shortly after the baby was born where I didn't hear from him understandably because, I mean, as you know, right, like... It's a pretty, it's one of the most crucial times possible in, in the life of a child and the person who's carrying that child. And then shortly after that, he was sending me more and more beats. So he probably sent me a hundred something beats. I sent him, I sent a few of those beats, not a few, a few is a gross understatement. I sent about 20 to 30 of those beats to Adam Mansback to review. And I'm thinking that Adam is going to go through these like a rapper would and say, oh, yeah, I like these 10 to 15. Set them to the side. And Adam actually wound up writing a paragraph on each of those beats and sending it to me, which I then forwarded to Messiah Music, who it kind of blew his mind that in my mind as well, that Adam was that thoughtful in terms of his consideration of the music. And at the same time, it also was very clear very quickly that the three of us really cared about this project and what it could be. So Messiah was involved almost from the very beginning. Um, I almost reached out to him before I reached out to my manager to connect the dots to start making the project happen. Wow. You have a song called Lord Costanza III on the album. Um, George Costanza and Larry David are people that I unfortunately relate to. Um, <laughs> is George Costanza a character that resonates with you? Yeah, but suddenly, but suddenly a new contender has emerged. 
George Costanza Jr. Cavorka passing through him. Falling through the streets of New York, holding half a Reuben. Never rock a Yankee fitted or a Mets cap. Right back in the kitchen, mashing filling into the crep lack. Any steps a setback. Vengeance is a Mickey Finn. Resentment slipped it in my whiskey as she blitzed me with a grin. Quit my job, then showed up early, swirling lit cigars in circles. Considered ordering foreign hair plugs off commercials. Dad's partly Morty, mostly Frank. Feats of strength, holding hands around the table, taking grievances for grace. Anger wheezing from my faces, trafed is steaming from the plates. The dinner got so awkward, thought, well, breathing's a mistake. Feast your eyes on the God, chicken salad on rye. Tell the truth till it's inconvenient, then snap into a lie. It's the toxic envelope pusher, the Gore-Tex coat butcher, the revived Festivus pole booker. Flaws in the mirror, rinse them off with my ignorance. Any job I get, give them cause for dismissal. Then wander the wilderness, awkward and bitter it is I, the Lord of the idiots. So, you know, it's interesting, I think, about George Costanza. And I haven't really been asked to talk about George Costanza in an interview yet. So I'm very excited to answer this question. <laughs> but I think, I think George Costanza as a character and Larry David as well, in terms of his on-screen persona, they're almost like the idea... They, they're trying to look like the best human beings possible to the outside world while in the process are doing the worst possible things to achieve that. And I think when I was a kid growing up watching Seinfeld with my dad, like any kid who's introduced to TV or movies, you think the main characters are the heroes at all times. So you're constantly like rooting for the heroes and not understanding why people are getting in their way. And then I went back and rewatched it as an adult and I thought to myself, oh, he's an idiot. Like this is just one of the most, he's one of the most stupid people in the history of television. And then the more I watched the show, the more I came to understand that he, he's kind of a stand in for a lot of the things that Larry David, because I think Larry David has a, a pretty good moral compass does not actually do. So this is a way for him to kind of filter out all the bad ideas and then I, I thought about myself and um, the extent to which I've gone to kind of preserve whatever image of a good person I had of myself in my brain and, and the ways in which I looked very silly in the process, the ways in which I'd come across as, you know, at times a, a loser when I was more down on my luck. And it allowed me to be vulnerable and open about myself in a way that was still humorous and not self-pitying. And I think that that's kind of the genius of how Larry David wrote George Costanza and, you know, writes himself on Curb Your Enthusiasm. And it was just a fun, it was just a fun song to write. So that's how I relate to George Costanza, for sure. Are you a fan of Curb? Uh, I haven't, you know what? I've watched like a handful of episodes. I haven't watched the whole thing. Uh, I need to, I need to sit down and actually dedicate some time to doing that. I wasn't a fan initially, so I had to go back and binge watch it. And I, I'm like, this guy is me. This is terrible. <laughs> this is <laughs> Like, I, I so could relate to him. Like, yeah, he's doing his best. He's, you know, but somehow shit gets fucked up. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, and, yeah. you know, he's so annoyed by people. I'm like, I so relate to this guy. I love Larry David, man. I'm a big fan. 
Yeah. And if you read the novel, Larry David is actually um, he he's in the novel. There's a moment where so the golem early in the book learns English because the golem is can only speak Yiddish initially. The golem learns English watching Curb Your Enthusiasm. And then at a certain point in the novel, I don't want to give it away, but Larry David actually shows up at a pretty pivotal moment. So it's pretty, if you, if you get a chance to read the novel, it's, I think you'll definitely appreciate it for sure. Okay. Yeah, that's more incentive. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, on the song Nights of Broken Glass, you speak on white supremacists and you say, claim to be history makers, but they're all liars. You also call them YouTube University graduates, uh, which was so perfect. I feel like these people have always been here, but it seems overwhelming, maybe due to social media, maybe due to the Trump thing. But I feel like we're being bombarded with these YouTube graduates. (laughs) Um, What is your opinion on the rise of these people? Uh, And how do you think we can... I don't want to say educate because I don't think they're redeemable, but maybe they are. I don't know. Yeah. How would you, how do you think we could give the truth to these people who are easily swayed by what they see on the internet? At a clansman's idol. Families passing tiki torches, flasks, and Bibles. Packing rifles, praying for a target to pop up. The marksmen, the cops who gobbled down a box lunch in their squad trucks. News vans pass through slowly like fat blue stogies capturing swastika tattoos glowing in the bonfire. Glaring at the counter protesters like who wants their jaw wired? Claim to be history majors and they're all liars. They're all liars. YouTube University graduates with digital diplomas. Trophy room of bated breath fishing for a culture. It's all bad oral hygiene or a river dyed green misinformation phasing through their minds at high speeds demanding their free speech be protected when Colin Kaepernick taking the knee having them cleaning weapons they blame George Soros for the factories the George Wallace is closed tobacco smoke all in their nose bouncing off of their clothes they don't bother with robes they want you to know exactly what side they're on and how they'll oppose anybody saying otherwise stars and bars colors fly chest puff like they're the tougher guys strength in numbers unless it's their reading comprehension scores tension torn they smell jew find mary and lennon swarm So I think something, in, and I'm going to start in one place and then get to a space where I'm answering your question. And I want to be mindful because it's an important one. Um, I remember a, a therapist once told me that two of the strongest emotions 
a human being can feel are shame and guilt and that there are countries that will go to war to avoid having to feel any sort of shame or guilt over the way that they treat people. And I think that it was something that was really insightful because it didn't, that didn't have to do with how I felt about white supremacists or the rise of white supremacy in the public consciousness. But the more I think about it, the more I realize that I think people live in a vacuum and an echo chamber now, and nobody ever wants anything to be their fault. And I think that there are a lot of white people who are, we're, we're complicit in white supremacy and whiteness in this country. We were raised in it. We were indoctrinated into it. And while I think that there are white people who are actively trying to dismantle how it presents itself in themselves and try to subvert it for the benefit of others who are not white. I also think that there are people who just don't give a fuck. I think that there are people who, who just don't want to be the bad guy, don't want to be the villain, don't want to feel like they have to change or do anything differently or live their lives differently or call into question things that they've said or done in the past. So it's much easier for them to then essentially create these scenarios out of whole cloth that are that are entirely bullshit scenarios in order to feel better about themselves or to feel better about their place in the world. And then you also have people who genuinely are hateful and bigoted and they're emboldened by the rise to power of other people who are hateful and bigoted because now all of a sudden oh, if this person has a platform to say this thing I've always thought to myself or always kept secret for a long time, now's the time for me to say it publicly. And I, I don't really think, I, I'm a high school teacher, so I think, I think children are redeemable. Um, I don't think adults are. I think especially adults who have been indoctrinated so deeply into things like white supremacy via social media and YouTube or, or things like hyper masculine misogynist stuff that we've been seeing on social media for the past couple years. Like, I think, I think people who have already bought into that hook, line and sinker, they have to make the decision that there's something about them that's worth, that needs to be redeemed in the first place in order for them to, because I mean, that's, it starts with yourself in thinking about the things that you said or done that have been harmful to others when it comes to racism, sexism. And if you don't want to feel bad about it, if you just want to be right all the time, or if you always want to be either the hero or the victim in every story you tell about yourself, you're not going to want to do that work because it's hard, ugly work and it's painful. If you don't want to do it, then the easiest choice is going to be to buy into this bullshit that you're being sold by people who want the world to be that much more hateful and bigoted and oppressive toward people who are already overwhelmingly oppressed. <laughs> and it, yeah, the shit just, yeah, it, it, it's infuriating to think about. And uh, it, I find it funny, well, not funny, ironic that you said 
you know, um, what, what you just said about those people being oppressed because it's like their enemies are black people, Jewish people, Mexican people. Like, it's not, it's not like, I don't, what are you afraid of? Like, what? Yeah. These are people that have been historically hated in this country. Are you know, you're 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 still leading the race. <laughs> you know, relax. Yeah, and I think there's uh, when you're there's a saying that's also really shaped my thinking around this too. This is like the one meme I saw on social media that actually was productive in terms of how it helped me think. But it was this. It was something. It was something along the lines of progress feels like oppression when you're accustomed to privilege. And that's I think that's where a lot of that comes from. It's like all this bullshit about we need to take our country back. You never lost the shit. (laughs) Right. This has been this has been entire like. And I think about a lot of southern states, too, where it's like you lost the fucking war. So you figured out ways to cheat to still have this be the kind of racist, oppressive country that you always wanted it to be. Whatever backdoor politics you had to do, whatever ways in which you found loopholes in legislation to persist with essentially systematic racism so that you could oppress as many black people, brown people, gay people as you want, you've done it. You you didn't lose shit. You did not lose shit. You're not losing shit. But because somebody else is gaining something that you've withheld from them or actively taken from them over the centuries in which this country has existed, now you're mad. 100% accurate. It, it really is. I believe, now that I think about it, it really exploded in the Obama era, because I think these people could not believe that they lost a stranglehold on a position that was theirs. And it was overwhelmingly young white people that voted Obama in. So I don't, it's confusing to me, but I think that really scared a lot of people. Like, wait a minute. (laughs) Now, we're letting him in the White House, and we think he's a Muslim. Whatever. Um, but I'm going to backtrack, because you said something that really hit me. Um, people, children are redeemable, but maybe not adults. I'm going to backtrack on my statement that I don't think racists are redeemable. I don't know that. <laughs> Probably not. Mm. But I do know that... I've changed over the years mm-hmm. about a lot of stuff. Yeah. I think if you live long enough and you're open to it, you can evolve. So the way I view a lot of things has changed over time. Mm-hmm. Point being, if someone is willing to learn, willing to listen, maybe they can't change. Yeah. You know what? You're right. But and maybe I'm just being very cynical which is also entirely possible. And also I I feel like 
the way I look at human beings is kind of filtered through my own experience. And I know that for a long time, maybe not around these issues specifically, but there are things I resisted changing about myself because on a conscious level, I didn't think that there was anything wrong. And on a subconscious level, I knew how difficult and challenging the work would be beyond what I even realized it would take to make these positive changes in my life. And to know how resistant I was to it, to know where my moral compass sits, to know that I value equity and freedom and safety for people to be who they are. I think that I'm incredibly skeptical that somebody whose moral compass points in the exact opposite direction is going to be confronted by those feelings and going to do the same thing I did. But, you know, I'm, I, I, I really hope I really, really hope you're right. And I hope that as my generation grows older, there are going to be people who look back on the ways that they thought about things, the ways that they behaved, and will try to do their best to make amends for it and to change the world in a positive way. And I guess there's always that hope that's there. I guess that always exists. But I think, but I think, I think I think it's an impossible task to ask of somebody who's not willing to do it. Hundred percent, hundred percent, yeah. On the song um, "Confederate Flags in Tel Aviv," you said a lot about Israel and Jewish people that are aligned with white supremacists. Why was it important for you to write this song, and are you worried about the potential backlash from that segment of Jewish people? Same people who are compromising our safety. 
Shelled natals and shed the wealth and wound up funding the domestic terror cells. Stained synagogues with blood in Pittsburgh, so his legacy will wear the shelves. It does. It's not just him. Shaking hands with people who discuss our extermination over non-kosher lunches. Tell jokes about us when we don't attend those functions. Something about what we have in common with the pizza and an oven. Yet we trust them. Like at the final frontier, they wouldn't turn everything we hold dear into buckskin. First ones out of the last ones in. And the doors crack. We turn our backs to ignore that. Like the text of the social contracts we signed didn't include a catch. The second there's nobody left to oppress. But the rest of the white people they detest. It's gonna be an appetite for our flesh. That same wailing wall that we built for ourselves would be the one we're shot flat against. And yet we still wave Confederate flags in Tel Aviv. Fuck. because it's something that's been hurtful like i've i've it's something that's always been hurtful to me to hear white jewish people emulating the people who have oppressed us the most over millennia it's white people jewish people have been oppressed by well not white people white jewish people have overwhelmingly and globally been oppressed in the name of white supremacy and to then watch white Jewish people emulate that, emulate those behaviors at the expense of the very same people that we purported to for a long time align ourselves with or ally ourselves with or protect, it breaks my heart and it's not something that we talk about. And if there's backlash, there's backlash. But I spoke from a very real place. And I spoke from a place of compassion and care and concern. And it was not an I'm better than you moment. It was not a we're all terrible, woe is me, mea culpa moment. It was a, this is a very real conversation I want to have with people. And maybe, like you were saying, it causes people to think differently, start asking themselves some questions, and then causes them to make that first move toward positive change and building with the communities that we've been complicit in oppressing. And I think that Unfortunately, it's something that goes unaddressed out of fear of reprisal from other people in the Jewish community and a feeling very much of we're like, I feel like I'm at risk of, of somebody booting me out, you know, of because I, I love being Jewish. It's a major part of my identity. I love the aspects of American Jewish history that spoke to the best of us. Progress, community building, healing the world, charitable giving, 
doing our best to build bridges with other people in order to kind of help them over the walls that are in front of them. And then to see how far we've moved away from that has been incredibly disappointing. And it was something I wanted to address in a song. And if people have an issue with it, I mean, this is gonna, this is probably a very poorly timed joke, but there is that, that old saying, two Jews, three opinions, right? Like that's kind of another thing that's inherent to the Jewish community is we've always kind of been in conversation and discussion about right versus wrong since the very beginning of the book of Genesis. So if it means that we have to continue to have conversations and debates, we can continue to have those conversations and debates, but I just want to see a positive change come of it. And hopefully this is a song that can do that for somebody. Okay. What do you want people to take away from the Golem of Brooklyn? I want them to be able to appreciate the multifacetedness of Jewish American life. And I also want them to take away from the novel, from the album, the idea that the Jewish experience is not monolithic, that it can't just be boxed into one place, that there are a million different ways to be Jewish. And also that we as white Jewish people in the United States are in a very privileged position in a way that maybe we haven't been in a lot of other European countries. And if we have this opportunity to be able to change the world for a better place to benefit people who have been more oppressed and marginalized than ourselves in this country, then we should take that opportunity. Um, and, you know, if there are people who are just looking for a good rap album that is, if they're looking for a concept record or one of its kind concept record and they want to check something like that out, I think this is a good place to start for sure. Um, yeah, I would say that's it as far as what I want people to take away from it. All right. Def C, thank you for joining the RealHipHop.com podcast. Thank you for having me. You're welcome, man. Peace. Yeah. Peace. The real hip hop MCM and DJing from your own mind, you know. I just right now we should start the show.